Chapter Fifteen of The Return of Alfred by Herbert George Jenkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Fifteen: A Village Divided Against Itself. From the hour that Smith won the cricket match against Upper Saxton, Little Bilstead became a village divided against itself. The sporting section of the community and Little Bilstead was intensely sporting in the matter of its annual trial of strength with Upper Saxton, went over to Smith in a body. Little Bilstead's society, however, showed a nicer discrimination between the relative claims of match-winning and morals. Colonel Enderby was not the man to be influenced by mob-worship, as he called it, and the sudden popularity of Smith rendered him almost apoplectic with rage. He drank many whiskies and sodas, which reacted upon his liver, and his liver in turn affected his temper. There was, between Colonel Enderby and peace with Alfred Warren, a linen line of fluttering filminess. He had been known to swear audibly, in a crowded thoroughfare, at the sight of a shop-window dressed for the part of a great white sail, and to the astonishment of the passers-by. Nothing could wipe out the memory of what he regarded as not only an insult to himself, but an affront to the army. When Tom Bassingthwaite delivered to the Colonel his letters on the morning after Smith had made cricket history for Little Bilstead, he had added to his usual greeting of, "'Good morning, Colonel,' a reference to the victory of the previous afternoon. "'Go to hell!' had been the explosive reply, and the door was banged violently in the postman's face. "'Can ninety-nine not out and a handful of wickets wipe out the memory of a great scandal?' That was the question which had exercised the mind of Miss Jell throughout a sleepless night. She knew that in the morning her sister would return to her hero-worship of the day before. Miss Jell had noted in the demeanour of her sister, when rebuked for her admiration of the prodigal, an indication of mutiny. It was the merest suggestion, but it had caused her some anxiety. To her Miss Mary was a younger sister, and as such must be protected from all influences, likely to imperil the Victorian innocence of her naturally sweet nature. Something must be done, Miss Jell had told herself time after time, as she tossed from side to side on her feather-bed. It was the flat-footed Ellen, however, who had supplied the rod with which the unfortunate Mary Jell was to be disciplined. Miss Jell was first down that morning, and Ellen, a woman, and therefore a hero-worshipper, promptly made reference to the cricket-match, and how the lad who brought the milk from the farm had made reference to Miss Mary a clinging to Miss Telford's leg. Having frozen Ellen to silence, Miss Jell was conscious of a feeling of relief. During the night she had prayed very hard for guidance, and Providence had sent her Smith's left leg wherewith to rebuke her delinquent sister. By the time breakfast was over, that is to say, Miss Jell's breakfast, for her sister consumed nothing but the bitterness of repentance, Miss Mary was reduced to tears and a determination to slip into the church that morning and ask God to forgive her for her unmaidenliness in grasping the shin of a popular hero, albeit in a moment of great excitement. She was convinced that she would never be able to meet Smith again without blushing, and the mere sight of a man would recall to her mind that she, Mary Jell, had been so forward as to grasp a masculine tibia. "'I—I I must be brazen!' she sobbed on her bed that morning, and Mary Jell knew no greater condemnation of a woman than to say that she was brazen. In each and every little Bilsett home on the morning following Smith's sudden jump to fame, 
the talk was exclusively concerned with the great and glorious victory so recently achieved. Each player in the match recounted his own particular deeds, particularly those who had been the greatest failures. To listening wives, mothers or brothers, they explained, to their own entire satisfaction, that the match had been won by that one particular run which they had either made or prevented an upper sexton player from making. All agreed that Mr. Alfred's play had been a revelation, and those who possessed some knowledge of the science of the game went over incontinently to the Smith heresy. During the day Little Bilstead was inspired with varying emotions and prompted to diverse occupations. Mrs. Spellman took her talk to pieces, although it had been re-trimmed especially for the cricket match, whilst Tom Simmons got most expensively drunk on old ale, the strength of his head rendering indulgence in this direction almost ruinous. Officially he reported himself as suffering from colic. Mrs. Trusted Green spent the whole morning in waving her best auburn wig and composing an invitation to Mr. Alfred Warren to take tea with her a week hence. If anything happened in the meantime, she argued, influenza should save her from the embarrassment of an engagement she was undesirous of keeping. Miss Marshall washed her father's linen trousers, humming the while, onward Christian soldiers, in honour of the victory of her village, whilst her father was engaged in retrospective regrets for the many dainties he had missed, which he now saw he might easily have attached without exciting comment, either verbal or mental. At the Grange, Eric was irrepressible. He jazzed Mrs. Higgs across the hall until she collapsed upon the stairs, not from want of enthusiasm, but from sheer lack of breath. He locked Willis in his pantry and burst in upon his sister, at a time when at least two inches more of silk stocking were exposed to view than the public was privileged to see. The result was a fierce combat, in which a table became upset and a vase broken before Marjorie's dainty person was firmly fixed upon what Eric called his stomach, but which she insisted was his chest. "'Isn't it just spiff?' he gasped, when at length permitted to rise, and Marjorie smiled. "'I say, Marjorie,' he burst out, when his sister had assumed the dressing-gown of a rich amber tint. That morning ordinary speech was denied him. He was in mood for bursts like those of a Lewis gun. "'Yes, Eric,' she replied, without looking round from the mirror, in front of which she had taken up her stand and was proceeding to brush her hair. "'Why don't you marry Smith?' There was a tinkling crash as the brush fell from her hand among various toilet requisites. "'Don't be silly, Eric,' she said, as she picked up the brush and proceeded to draw it over the auburn masses of her hair. "'You like him?' "'I don't.' "'You dropped your brush?' "'It slipped from my hand.' Why doesn't it slip now? Because I'm holding it more tightly. Rats! And she continued in long sweeping strokes to reorder her hair. Why won't you marry him? He persisted, as she made no sign of continuing the conversation. He'll play for England one of these days. It seemed to him selfish of any sister to deny a fellow such a brother-in-law. But you know he's not that Warren blighter, he continued. What do you mean? she demanded, turning swiftly from the contemplation of her own reflection to the screwed-up, freckled face of her brother. Eric always screwed up his features when demanding something he saw very little chance of getting. "'A fellow can't learn to play cricket like that. It's in him. You ask the vicar.' Marjorie turned slowly back to the mirror. 
The movement of the brush was slower, and there was a slight pucker about the delicately penciled eyebrows. "'He's frightfully keen on you,' Eric went on presently. "'He seems—' "'Be quiet, Eric. Don't talk nonsense,' she cried, and the mirror reflected a blush that she knew was not hers. "'He was always talking about you,' Eric continued remorselessly, "'or trying to get me to. He thinks I don't see through it, but I do,' he added, with a knowing air. "'I may have a fool name, but—' "'Where do you learn such expressions, Eric?' broke in Marjorie, anxious to divert the conversation from its present embarrassing channel. "'What expression?' "'Fool name.' "'Oh, that's Otis P. Wannabrockers. He's an American, one of Hamley's crowd. Not a bad fellow. He broke Gambrel's nose, and it made him popular.' "'Made him popular?' cried Marjorie, pausing in her brushing. "'Gam's always bullying somebody, and he said Washington was a rebel.' So Otis P. went for him, and Gamp went about with his nose in a sling. Of course, we all know that old Wash was a rap, but it was rotten bad form to say so, he added, for his sister's illumination. But I say, Margie, it's jolly beastly of you. What is? she queried weakly. You know what I mean, he retorted sullenly. You might. You know how rotten I am with fast bowling, and he would— Don't be ridiculous, Eric, she retorted resuming her brushing. "'It's precious little I ever ask,' he grumbled. "'And when I do, you—' "'Here, what the—' She turned swiftly, and before Eric could complete his sentence, or had time to dodge, her arms were around his neck, and she had kissed him. "'You off your Brazil?' he demanded angrily, as he rubbed the back of his neck. Then, withdrawing his hand, he examined it carefully for signs of blood, but seeing nothing, he resumed the rubbing. "'That brush hurts!' With heightened colour, Marjorie returned to the mirror and recommenced the brushing of her hair. Did her eyes really sparkle as much as the mirror said? It was to show I forgive you for bursting into my room when— Well, just now, she said, with a calmness she was far from feeling. For nearly a minute he continued to regard the rhythmic sweep of the brush and the billow of her hair as from time to time she threw back her head. Finally, without further remark, he slipped out of the room, his brow puckered in thought, as have been the brows of many other males, at the inexplicability of the female of their own species. It was then that he locked Willis in his pantry. He required dramatic relief. That morning's breakfast at the vicarage was the brightest that either Miss Lipscomb or Janet remembered. For the time being, the vicar seemed to find more in the smallness of little Bilstead than in the glory and the grandeur of the ancients. The cricket match was replayed in its every detail. Each thrill was re-experienced, and every pang was felt anew. Time after time came from Miss Lipscomb the reminder, "'John, your coffee is getting cold,' or "'Cricket will keep hot, but eggs and bacon won't,' at which the vicar, ever obedient, would either drink or eat." a moment later returning to the excitements of the previous day's game. Both he and Miss Lipscomb were now entirely convinced that Smith was not Alfred Warren. The vicar had dismissed the matter in a few words. A first-class cricketer himself in his youth, he knew that such skill as Smith had shown was as remote from acquirement as the genius of a Theocritus or a Horace. Janet marvelled at the change in the master whilst the lines at the corners of Miss Lipscomb's mouth fluttered as she watched the keen, nervous hands of her brother as they emphasized his words. Once he upset his coffee-cup in illustrating a stroke to which he had been addicted nearly half a century before, 
and he forgot even to apologize to his sister, a thing he invariably did at any mishap due either to his own or another's act. Suddenly there was a whir of wings, followed by shrill pipings of protest, announcing that some forbidden foot was invading the bird's breakfast-table. The flutters disappeared from the corners of Miss Lipscombe's mouth as she turned to rebuke the intruder for an unpardonable act of sacrilege. A moment later the grinning face of Eric appeared at the open French windows. "'Eric! Haven't I told you?' "'Sorry, Miss Lipscombe,' he cried, "'but I couldn't wait to go round. I've just got to talk about it to someone or I shall explode. I've had a fight with Margie, jazzed Higgy out of breath, and locked Willis in his pantry, but—' "'Isn't it ripping, sir?' he broke off, addressing the vicar. "'Absolutely top-hole.' "'Morning,' he nodded to Smith. "'We were just talking about the match, Eric,' said the vicar. "'I shan't talk of anything else, sir, for a month,' cried Eric. "'It was a wonderful day,' said the vicar, relapsing somewhat into his customary dreaminess. "'A wonderful day.' "'I often wonder, Hannah,' he continued, addressing his sister if I ought not to modify the interest I take in sport. For a shepherd! Rubbish! she cried. If a shepherd isn't a sportsman, how is he to know how to keep wolves away from his flock? The vicar's eyes widened slightly as he gazed across at his sister. That savours of the sophists, Hannah, he said gently. I must seek the guidance of the bishop when he comes. And Miss Lipscombe made a mental note to have the first word with the bishop. It had become the bishop's custom, when visiting his old friend, the vicar of Little Bilstead, first to inquire of Miss Lipscombe for details of what he called the dark patches. Consequently, when the vicar asked for guidance, the bishop was never at a loss how to advise him, and in such a way as to deny him none of the few pleasures he loved, but which he thought might be wrong just because he loved them. "'I wish we were playing again to-day,' said Eric, as he seated himself at the table and began work upon a large slice of currant cake. "'Are you collecting eggs, then?' asked Miss Lipscombe dryly. "'I say, that's too bad, Miss Lipscombe,' he protested, through a mouthful of cake. "'I know I made a blob, but if I hadn't stopped that boundary, we should have been licked.' "'I suppose there are ten different men who think they won,' suggested Miss Lipscombe, who loved to tease Eric. "'No, Miss Lipscombe,' he replied. Nine men and a boy.' And he took another bite of cake which, to further controversy, was like an editorial. This discussion is now closed. As soon as Colonel Enderby was shaved and dressed that morning, he went down to the village, in the hope of encountering one of his own social set, as he was accustomed to regard those whom he allowed himself to meet on equal terms. As he passed Rose Cottage, he caught a glimpse of Mr. Marshall's white trousers swaying gently in the breeze. Some strange association of ideas caused him to flush darkly, and swear fluently under his breath. Outside the post-office he encountered Mrs. Trusbitt Green, who had just posted a letter inviting Smith to tea with her. She had taken the precaution of altering the slope of her handwriting, so that Paul Pryingthwaite, as she called the village postman, should not discover who was writing to the prodigal. She had taken the further precaution of securing the flap with sealing-wax. Mrs. Trusbitt Green took no risks. As she had addressed her invitation to Alfred Warren, it was not until months later that it was opened, and Smith became aware of the honour that had been conferred upon him. "'Good morning, ma'am,' cried the Colonel, as he lifted his cap. "'None the worse for yesterday's heat, I hope,' he added 
gallantly. Mrs. Truspitt Green smiled up at him, using the same smile which, forty years ago, had secured her a husband. "'What did you think of it, Colonel?' she asked, guardedly, not quite seeing how she could ascribe the defeat of Upper Saxton to heavenly will, she decided it were better to seek earthly guidance. "'A scandal, ma'am!' he cried, in the tone he had been accustomed to use to his officers when informing them that the regiment, and incidentally the British army, was going to the dogs. "'Last night the whole village was intoxicated, ma'am. Intoxicated!' he added, in what was almost a shout. "'You don't say so!' cried Mrs. Truspitt Green. All the morning she had been regretting the fact that the previous evening she had allowed herself to be dissuaded from taking a walk with her maid toward the village. It was the maid who had dissuaded her. She had plans of her own, also the back-door key. At breakfast she had told her mistress of the goings-on of the night before, mentioning the milk-boy as her source of information. "'I saw it myself,' he barked. "'The whole village was full of men and women, drinking and fighting and dancing. It's a scandal.' and all through that scoundrel Warren. He ought to be deported. It was true that little Bilsett had held high carnival the previous night, gathering in force outside the pigeons. The local contingent had been reinforced by a good sprinkling of Upper Saxtonians. By nine o'clock the pigeon cellars had been drunk dry of all save a few bottles of spirits and mineral waters, after which strange concoctions were invented and drunk, including cider and rum cherry brandy and stone ginger beer. There had been several faction fights, in all of which Little Bilstead had triumphed, for never had Little Bilstead tales been so erect as on that dramatic night of unexpected victory. At first the general attitude had been a little uncertain, but after a few rounds of the flowing bowl, as represented by mugs of ale, the name of Miss Alfred was heard again and again, coupled with toasts of vainglory and rodomontade for little Bilsett wore its newly acquired laurels no more modestly than Upper Saxton had worn theirs in the past. Yardley had been seen hopping about unsteadily on one foot, like an intoxicated robin, moving from group to group, inquiring if anyone had seen his boot, which had somehow disappeared when removed in order that a crease in a sock might be readjusted. Roars of laughter had greeted his efforts to discover it. Yardley had been one of the chief victims of the victory, Everyone wanted to be his host, and quite a number succeeded, with the result that the little Bilstead captain, who boasted one of the strongest heads in the eastern counties, found it extremely difficult to move about on one leg. "'That fellow Postle was one of the worst,' barked Colonel Enderby. "'I shall report him.' It was true that P.C. Postle had somewhat forgotten the dignity due to the uniform he wore. Colonel Enderby was prepared to report an archangel for making a draught with his wings. There were few of his inferiors in Little Bilstead, male or female, whom at one time or another he had not threatened to report. At that very moment the village policeman himself was engaged in going through his cottage with a tooth-comb in search of his helmet. He was puzzled to account for a red hat adorned with blue poppies which hung from the peg dedicated to his official headgear when not in action. "'Ha!' cried the colonel, as the Miss Jells came out of the post-office, and, with a bow and another exposure of his manifest boldness to the blue dome of heaven, he hurriedly left Mrs. Truspitt Green. "'Good morning!' he cried, with a sudden stiffening of his frame, followed by a bow and yet a third exposure of the crown that took so high a polish. 
"'I hope you were not disturbed by last night's disgraceful scenes.' Neither of the Miss Jells had heard of anything disgraceful, although Miss Mary blushed at the sound of a word she heard for the second time that day. Colonel Enderby once more plunged into the story of the scandalous conduct of the little Bilsteadians in the hour of victory. Miss Jell looked shocked, whilst Miss Mary strove not to appear as interested as she felt. "'We shall be the laughing-stock of the whole county,' he cried angrily, in conclusion, "'and all through that young reprobate Warren.' Miss Mary gave a little shudder of fear, for had not she, Mary Jell, clung to the left shin of the very man the Colonel was denouncing? She felt almost fast. "'I tried to find Postle,' continued the Colonel, "'and—' He stopped suddenly. Coming towards them was the epitome of the law himself, carrying something done up flimsily in a newspaper. At the sight of the Miss Jells and Colonel Enderby, whom he held in considerable dread, Postle hurriedly transferred the parcel to the rear, walking along with an elaborate air of unconcern, which in another would not have deceived even him. Memory had at length come to his aid, and he recalled having exchanged hats the previous night with pretty Millie Marjoram, and he was now on his way to effect a re-exchange. Although wearing his uniform, Postle had on his head a cloth cap, which gave to his appearance the suggestion of a music-hall turn. He was so intent upon the little group of notabilities that he did not see the smiling Millie herself approaching, his helmet on the back of her impudent head. Colonel Enderby, however, saw it, and, being a man of the world and one who had fought for his king and country, as he was fond of expressing it, realized immediately the significance of what he saw. Postle, he cried, in a voice that would have brought a squad of the rawest recruits to attention like a Prussian regiment. There was a scream. A helmet dropped a few feet in front of the astonished Postle, whilst Millie was running towards a red hat with blue poppies lying in the middle of the road. That jaunty air of detachment had been fatal to the fastenings of P.C. Postle's parcel, and the hat had fallen out. "'Catch me changing hats with you again, Bor!' cried the outraged Millie, as she proceeded to blow the dust from her precious headgear. "'You gawk!' she added, her eyes still upon the reds and blues of her treasured millinery. Postle continued to stare at the Colonel, whilst Miss Jell turned aside and Miss Mary blushed. Somehow or other the incident reminded her of her own unmaidenly act of the day before. To Miss Jell it seemed almost indelicate that such revelations should be made in the presence of a man. She had always disapproved of Millie Marjoram. She disapproved of all pretty girls on principle, for was not prettiness in a girl merely a trap, and they did not sooner or later invariably lead to scandal. This incident, however, was both flagrant and indelicate. It— "'What have you to say for yourself, Postle?' barked the Colonel fiercely, his moustache appearing strangely white against the purple of his face. "'She took my helmet,' he grumbled, as he stooped to retrieve his official headgear. "'Blamier,' he muttered under his breath, as he rose once more to an upright position. Then, in what appeared to be one movement, he placed the helmet on his head, saluted, turned, and was walking swiftly away in the direction of his own cottage. "'I won't forget this more,' he hissed, as he passed the now smiling Millie, who promptly put out her tongue at him. Miss Mary, who saw the action, was once more strangely reminded of her own lapse. "'I hope you're not going to receive this young scoundrel,' cried Colonel Enderby, tearing his gaze from the back of the retreating postle to Miss Jell. 
We look to you, he added, as she appeared to hesitate. Certainly not, Colonel Enderby, was the icy retort, and, with a slight bow, Miss Jell passed on, followed by her sister, who blushed for the third time that morning. Now what the devil, he spluttered, bewildered at the sudden change in Miss Jell's social barometer. Damn, he exploded, as he turned on his heel and stamped off in the direction of his own house, where Mrs. Warnes was engaged in preparing a curry almost as hot as the Colonel's temper. It is not for Colonel Enderby to suggest whom we shall receive and whom we shall not receive, Miss Jell remarked to her sister as they walked through the village in the direction of the Cedars. His remark is a presumption, she added, and her sister wondered if they were really going to receive the man whose shin she had embraced with such abandon, and again she blushed. End of chapter 15